0: Chapter ten Chapter eleven Chapter twelve Smith in the City This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit Librivox.blogsom. com Today's reading by Chris Gorange Smith in the City by PG Woodhouse Chapter ten. mister Bickersdyke addresses his constituents. It was noted by the observant at the bank next morning that Mr. Bickersdyke had something on his mind. William, the messenger, knew it when he found his respectful salute ignored. Little Briggs, the accountant, knew it when his obsequious but cheerful good morning was acknowledged only by a morn, which was almost like an oath. Mr. Bickersdyke passed up the aisle and into his room like an east wind. He sat down at his table and pressed the bell. Harold, William's brother and co-messenger, entered with the air of one ready to dock if any missile should be thrown at him. The reports of the manager's frame of mind had been circulated in the office, and Harold felt somewhat apprehensive. It was on an occasion very similar to this that George Barstead, formerly in the employ of the New Asiatic Bank in the capacity of messenger, had been rash enough to laugh at what he had taken for a joke of Mr. Bickersdyke's, and had been instantly presented with the sack for gross impertinence. "'Ask Mr. Smith,' began the manager. Then he paused. "'No, never mind,' he added. Harold remained in the doorway, puzzled. ''Don't stand there gaping at me, man,'' cried Mr Bickersdyke. ''Go away!'' Harold retired and informed his brother, William, that in his, Harold's, opinion, Mr Bickersdyke was off his chump. ''Off his onion,'' said William, soaring a trifle higher in poetic imagery. me, with the terse verdict of Samuel Jakes, the third messenger. Always said so. And with that, the new Asiatic bank staff of messengers dismissed Mr Bickersdyke and proceeded to concentrate themselves on their duties, which consisted principally of hanging about and discussing the prophecies of that modern seer, Captain Coe. What had made Mr Bickersdyke change his mind so abruptly was the sudden realisation of the fact that he had no case against Smith, In his capacity of manager of the bank, he could not take official notice of Smith's behaviour outside office hours, especially as Smith had done nothing but stare at him. It would be impossible to make anybody understand the true inwardness of Smith's stare. Theoretically, Mr Bickersdyke had the power to dismiss any subordinate of his, whom he did not consider satisfactory, but it was a power that had to be exercised with discretion the manager was accountable for his actions to the board of directors if he dismissed smith smith would certainly bring an action against the bank for wrongful dismissal and on the evidence he would infallibly win it mr Bickersdyke did not welcome the prospect of having to explain to the directors that he had let the shareholders of the bank in for a fine of whatever a discriminating jury cared to decide upon simply because he had been stared at while playing bridge his only hope was to catch smith doing his work badly he touched the bell again and sent for mr rossiter the messenger found the head of the postage department in conversation with smith Manchester United had been beaten one goal to nil on the previous afternoon, and Smith was informing Mr Rossiter that the referee was a robber, who had evidently been financially interested in the result of the game. The way he looked at it, said Smith, was that the thing had been a moral victory for United. Mr Rossiter said yes, he thought so too, and it was at this moment that Mr Bickersdyke sent for him to ask whether Smith's work was satisfactory the head of the postage department gave his opinion without hesitation smith's work was about the hottest proposition he had ever struck smith's work well it stood alone you couldn't compare it with anything there are no degrees in perfection smith's work was perfect and that was an end to it he put it differently but that was the gist of what he said mr Bickersdyke observed he was glad to hear it and smashed a nib by stabbing the desk with it. It was on the evening following this that the bank manager was due to address a meeting at the Kenningford Town Hall. He was looking forward to the event with mixed feelings. He had stood for Parliament once before, several years back, in the North. He had been defeated by a couple of thousand votes, and he hoped that the episode had been forgotten, not merely because his defeat had been heavy, there was another reason. On that occasion he had stood as a liberal. He was standing for Kenningford as a Unionist. Of course a man is at perfect liberty to change his views if he wishes to do so, but the process is apt to give his opponents a chance of catching him to use the inspired language of the music halls on the bend. Mr Bickersdyke was rather afraid that the light-hearted electors of Kenningford might avail themselves of this chance. Kenningford, S.E., is undoubtedly by way of being a tough sort of place, its inhabitants inclined to a robust type of humour, which finds a verbal vent in catchphrases and expends itself physically in smashing shop windows and kicking policemen. He feared that the meeting at the town hall might possibly be a trifle rowdy. All political meetings are very much alike. Somebody gets up and introduces the speaker of the evening, and then the speaker of the evening says at great length what he thinks of the scandalous manner in which the government is behaving or the iniquitous goings-on of the opposition. From time to time, confederates in the audience rise and ask carefully rehearsed questions, which are answered fully and satisfactorily by the orator. When a genuine heckler interrupts, the orator either ignores him, or says haughtily that he can find him arguments but cannot find him brains. Or occasionally, when the question is an easy one, he answers it. A quietly conducted political meeting is one of England's most delightful indoor games. When the meeting is rowdy, the audience has more fun, but the speaker a good deal less. Mr Bickersdyke's introducer was an elderly Scotch peer, an excellent man for the purpose in every respect, except that he possessed a very strong accent. The audience welcomed that accent uproariously. The electors of Kenningford, who really had any definite opinions on politics, were fairly equally divided. There were about as many earnest liberals as there were earnest unionists. But besides these, there were a strong contingent who did not care which side won. They looked on elections as heaven-sent opportunities for making a great deal of noise. They attended meetings in order to extract amusement from them, and they voted if they voted at all, quite irresponsibly. A funny story at the expense of one candidate told on the morning of the polling was quite likely to send these brave fellows off in dozens, filling in their papers for the victim's opponent. There was a solid block of these gay spirits at the back of the hall. They received the Scotch peer with huge delight. He reminded them of Harry Lauder, and they said so. They addressed him affectionately as Arry, Throughout his speech, which was rather long, they implored him to be a pal and sing the safest of the family, or failing that I love a lassie. Finding they could not induce him to do this, they did it themselves. They sang it several times. When the peer, having finished his remarks on the subject of Mr Bickersdyke, at length sat down, they cheered for seven minutes and demanded an encore. The meeting was in excellent spirits. "'when Mr Bickersdyke rose to address it. "'The effort of doing justice to the last speaker "'had left the free and independent electors "'at the back of the hall slightly limp. "'The bank manager's opening remarks "'were received without any demonstration. "'Mr Bickersdyke spoke well. "'He had a penetrating, if harsh, voice, "'and he said what he had to say forcibly. "'Little by little the audience came under his spell.' When, at the end of a well-turned sentence, he paused and took a sip of water, there was a round of applause, in which many of the admirers of Mr Harry Lauder joined. He resumed his speech. The audience listened intently. Mr Bickersdyke, having said some nasty things about free trade and the alien immigrant, turned to the needs of the Navy, and the necessity of increasing the fleet at all costs. This is no time for half-measures, he said, we must do our utmost. We must burn our boats. Excuse me, said a gentle voice. Mr Bickersdyke broke off. In the centre of the hall, a tall figure had risen. Mr Bickersdyke found himself looking at a gleaming eye glass which the speaker had just polished and inserted in his eye. The ordinary heckler, Mr Bickersdyke would have taken in his stride. He had got his audience and simply by continuing and ignoring the interruption, he could have won through in safety. But the sudden appearance of Smith unnerved him. He remained silent. How, asked Smith, do you propose to strengthen the Navy by burning boats? The inanity of the question enraged even the pleasure-seekers at the back. Order, order, cried the earnest contingent. ''Sit down, Fice!'' roared the pleasure-seekers. Smith sat down with a patient smile. Mr Bickersdyke resumed his speech, but the fire had gone out of it. He had lost his audience. A moment before he had grasped them and played on their minds, or what passed for minds down Kenningford Way, as on a stringed instrument. Now he had lost his hold. He spoke on rapidly, but he could not get into his stride. The trivial interruption had broken the spell. His words lacked grip. The dead silence in which the first part of his speech had been received, that silence, which is a greater tribute to the speaker than any applause, had given place to a restless medley of little noises. Here, a cough. There, a scraping of a boot along the floor, as its wearer moved uneasily in his seat. In another place, a whispered conversation. The audience was bored. Mr. Bickersdyke left the Navy and went on to more general topics. But he was not interesting. He quoted figures, saw a moment later that he had not quoted them accurately, and instead of carrying on boldly, went back and corrected himself. Go up top, said a voice at the back of the hall, and there was a general laugh. Mr. Bickersdyke galloped unsteadily on. He condemned the government. He said they had betrayed their trust. And then he told an anecdote. The government, gentlemen, he said, achieves nothing worth achieving, and every individual member of the government takes all the credit for what is done to himself. Their methods remind me, gentlemen, of an amusing experience I had while fishing one summer in the Lake District. In a volume entitled, Three Men in a Boat, there is a story of how the author and a friend go into a riverside inn and see a very large trout in a glass case. They make inquiries about it, have men assure them, one by one, that the trout was caught by themselves. In the end, the trout turns out to be made of plaster of Paris. mister Bickersdyke told told that story as an experience of his own, while fishing one summer in the Lake District. It went well. The meeting was amused. Mr. Bickersdyke went on to draw a trenchant comparison between the lack of genuine merit in the trout and the lack of genuine merit in the achievements of His Majesty's Government. There was applause. When it had ceased, Smith rose to his feet again. Excuse me, he said. Chapter 11 misunderstood. Mike had refused to accompany Smith to the meeting that evening, saying that he had got too many chances in the ordinary way of business of hearing Mr. Biggersdyke speak without going out of his way to make more. So Smith had gone off to Kenningford alone, and Mike, feeling too lazy to sally out to any place of entertainment, had remained at the flat with a novel. He was deep in this, when there was the sound of a key in the latch and shortly afterwards Smith entered the room. On Smith's brow there was a look of pensive care and also a slight discoloration. When he removed his overcoat Mike saw that his collar was burst and hanging loose and that he had no tie. On his erstwhile speckless and gleaming shirt front were a number of finger impressions of a boldness and clearness of outline which would have made a Bertillon expert leap with joy. "'Hullo,' said Mike, dropping his book. Smith nodded in silence, went to his bedroom, and returned with the looking-glass. Propping this up on a table, he proceeded to examine himself with the utmost care. He shuddered slightly as his eye fell on the finger-marks, and without a word he went into his bathroom again. He emerged after an interval of ten minutes in sky-blue pyjamas, slippers and an old Etonian blazer. He lit a cigarette and, sitting down, stared pensively into the fire. "'What the dickens have you been playing at?' demanded Mike. Smith heaved a sigh. "'That,' he replied, "'I could not say precisely. "'At one moment it seemed to be rugby football. "'At another,' a jiu-jitsu séance. Later it bore a resemblance to a pantomime rally. However, whatever it was, it was all very bright and interesting, a distinct experience. "'Have you been scrapping?' asked Mike. "'What happened? Was there a row?' "'There was,' said Smith, "'in a measure what might be described as a row. "'At least, When you find a perfect stranger attaching himself to your collar and pulling, you begin to suspect that something of that kind is on the bill. Did they do that? Smith nodded. A merchant in a moth-eaten bowler started warbling to a certain extent with me. It was all very trying for a man of culture. He was a man who had, I should say, discovered that alcohol was a food long before the doctors found it out. A good chap, possibly, but a little boisterous in his manner. Well, well. Smith shook his head sadly. He got you one on the forehead, said Mike, or somebody did. Tell us what happened. I wish the dickens I'd come with you. I'd no notion there would be a rag of any sort. What did happen? Comrade Jackson, said Smith sorrowfully, how sad it is in this life of ours to be constantly misunderstood. You know, of course, how wrapped up I am in comrade Bickersdyke's welfare. You know that all my efforts are directed towards making a decent man of him, that, in short, I am his truest friend. Does he show by so much as a word that he appreciates my labours? Not he. I believe that man is beginning to dislike me comrade Jackson what happened anyhow never mind about Bickers dyke perhaps it was mistaken zeal on my part well I will tell you all make a long arm for the shovel comrade Jackson and pile on a few more coals I thank you well all went quite smoothly for a while Comrade B, in quite good form, got his second wind and was going strong for the tape when a regrettable incident occurred. He informed the meeting that while up in the lake country, fishing, he went to an inn and saw a remarkably large stuffed trout in a glass case. He made inquiries and found that five separate and distinct people had caught. Why, dash it all, said Mike. "'That's a frightful chestnut!' Smith nodded. "'It certainly has appeared in print,' he said. "'In fact, I should have said it was a rather well-known story. "'I was so interested in Comrade Bickersdyke's statement "'that the thing had happened to himself that, "'purely out of goodwill towards him, "'I got up and told him that I thought it was my duty as a friend to let him know that a man named Jerome had pinched his story, put it in a book, and got money by it. Money, mark you, that should by rights have been Comrade Bickersdykes. He didn't appear to care much about sifting the matter thoroughly. In fact, he seemed anxious to get on with his speech and slur the matter over, but tactlessly, perhaps, I continued rather to harp on the thing, I said that the book in which the story had appeared was published in 1889. I asked him how long ago it was that he had been on his fishing tour, because it was important to know in order to bring the charge home against Jerome. Well after a bit I was amazed, and pained too, to hear Comrade Bickersdyke urging certain bravos in the audience to turn me out if ever there was a case of biting the hand that fed him well well by this time the meeting had begun to take sides to some extent what i might call my party the earnest investigators were whistling between their fingers stamping on the floor and shouting chestnuts while the opposing party the bravos seemed to be trying as i say to do jujitsu tricks with me. It was a painful situation. I know the cultivated man of affairs should have passed the thing off with a short, careless laugh, but owing to the above-mentioned alcohol expert having got both hands under my collar, short, careless laughs were off. I was compelled, very reluctantly, to conclude the interview by tapping the bright boy on the jaw. He took the hint, and sat down on the floor. I thought no more of the matter, and was making my way thoughtfully to the exit, when a second man of wrath put the above on my forehead. You can't ignore a thing like that. I collected some of his waistcoat, and one of his legs, and hove him with some vim into the middle distance. By this time, a good many of the earnest investigators were beginning to join in, and it was just there that the affair began to have a certain point of resemblance to a pantomime rally. Everybody seemed to be shouting a good deal and hitting everybody else. There was no place for a man of delicate culture, so I edged towards the door and drifted out. There was a cab in the offing. I boarded it, and having kicked a vigorous politician in the stomach, as he was endeavouring to climb in too, I drove off home. Smith got up, looked at his forehead once more in the glass, sighed and sat down again. All very disturbing, he said. Great. "'God,' said Mike, "'I wish I'd come. "'Why on earth didn't you tell me you were going to rag?' "'I think you might as well have done. "'I wouldn't have missed it for worlds.' "'Smith regarded him with raised eyebrows. "'Rag?' he said. "'Comrade Jackson, I do not understand you. "'You surely do not think that I had any other object in doing what I did "'than to serve Comrade Bickersdyke?' It's terrible how one's motives get distorted in this world of ours. Well, said Mike with a grin, I know one person who'll jolly well distort your motives, as you call it, and that's Bickersdyke. Smith looked thoughtful. True, he said, true. There is that possibility. I tell you, Comrade Jackson, once more that my bright young life is being slowly blighted by the frightful way in which that man misunderstands me it seems almost impossible to try to do him a good turn without having the action misconstrued what will you say to him tomorrow? I shall make no allusion to the painful affair If I happen to meet him in the ordinary course of business routine I shall pass some light pleasant remark, on the weather, let us say, or the bank rate, and continue my duties. How about if he sends for you, and wants to do the light pleasant remark business, on his own? In that case I shall not thwart him, if he invites me into his private room. I shall be his guest, and shall discuss, to the best of my ability, any topic which he may care to introduce. There shall be no constraint between Comrades Bickersdyke and myself." No, I shouldn't think there would be. I wish I could come and hear you. I wish you could, said Smith, courteously. Still, it doesn't matter much to you. You don't care if you do get sacked." Smith rose. In that way, possibly, as you say, I am agreeably situated. If the new Asiatic Bank does not require Smith's services, there are other spheres, where a young man of spirit may carve a place for himself. No, what is worrying me, Comrade Jackson, is not the thought of the push. It is the growing fear that Comrade Bickersdyke and I will never thoroughly understand and appreciate one another. A deep gulf lies between us. I do what I can to bridge it over, but he makes no response. On his side of the gulf, building operations appear to be at an entire standstill. That is what is carving these lines of care on my forehead, Comrade Jackson. That is what is painting these purple circles beneath my eyes. Quite inadvertently to be disturbing Comrade Bickersdyke, annoying him, preventing him from enjoying life. How sad this is. Life bulges with these tragedies. Mike picked up the evening paper. Don't let it keep you awake at night, he said. By the way, did he see that Manchester United were playing this afternoon? They won. You'd better sit down and sweat up some of the details. You'll want them tomorrow. You are very right, Comrade Jackson, said Smith, reseating himself. So the Mancunians pushed the bulb into the meshes beyond the uprights no fewer than four times, did they... Bless the dear boys, what spirits they do enjoy, to be sure. Comrade Jackson, do not disturb me. I must concentrate myself. These are deep waters. Chapter 12. In a Nutshell Mr. Bickersdyke sat in his private room at the new Asiatic bank with a pile of newspapers before him. At least... The casual observer would have said that it was Mr. Bickersdyke. In reality, however, it was an active volcano in the shape and clothes of the bank manager. It was freely admitted in the office that morning that the manager had lowered all records with ease. The staff had known him to be in a bad temper before, frequently, but his frame of mind on all previous occasions had been... Compared with his present frame of mind, that of a rather exceptionally good-natured lamb. Within ten minutes of his arrival, the entire office was on the jump. The messengers were collected in a pallid group in the basement, discussing the affair in whispers, and endeavouring to restore their nerve with about sixpeneurth of beverage known as unsweetened. The heads of department to a man had bowed before the storm. Within the space of seven minutes and a quarter, Mr Bickersdyke had contrived to find some fault with each of them. Inward Bills was out at an ABC shop, snatching a hasty cup of coffee to pull him together again. Outward Bills was sitting at his desk with the glazed stare of one who had been struck in the thorax by a thunderbolt. Mr Rossiter, had been torn from Smith in the middle of a highly technical discussion of the Manchester United match, just as he was showing, with the aid of a ball of paper, how he had once seen Meredith at a Sandy Turnbull in a cup match, and was now leaping about like a distracted grasshopper. Mr Waller, head of the cash department, had been summoned to the presence, and after listening meekly to a rush of criticism, had retired to his desk, with the air of a beaten spaniel only one man of the many in the building seemed calm and happy Smith Smith had resumed the chat about Manchester United on mr. Rossiter's return from the lion's den at the spot where it had been broken off but finding that the head of the postage department was in no mood for discussing football or anything else he had postponed his remarks and placidly resumed his work. Mr Bickersdyke picked up a paper, opened it, and began searching the columns. He had not far to look. It was a slack season for the newspapers, and his little trouble, which might have received a paragraph in a busy week, was set forth fully in three-quarters of a column. The column was headed amusing heckling. Mr Bickersdyke read a few lines and crumpled the paper up with a snort. The next he examined was an organ of his own shade of political opinion. It too gave him nearly a column headed, Disgraceful scene at Kenningford. There was also a leaderette on the subject. The leaderette said so exactly what Mr Bickersdyke thought himself that for a moment he was soothed. Then the thought of his grievance returned, and he pressed the bell. ''Send Mr. Smith to me,'' he said. William, the messenger, proceeded to inform Smith of the summons. ''Smith's face lit up. I am always glad to sweeten the monotony of toil with a chat with little Clarence,'' he said. ''I shall be with him in a moment.'' He cleaned his pen very carefully, "'placed it beside his ledger, flicked a little dust off his coat sleeve, "'and made his way to the manager's room. "'Mr. Bickersdyke received him with the ominous restraint "'of a tiger crouching for its spring. "'Smith stood beside the table with languid grace, "'suggestive of some favoured confidential secretary, "'waiting for instructions. "'A ponderous silence brooded over the room for some moments.' Smith broke it by remarking that the bank-rate was unchanged. He mentioned this fact as if it afforded him a personal gratification. Mr. Bickersdyke spoke. ''Well, Mr. Smith,'' he said. ''You wished to see me about something, sir?'' inquired Smith, ingratiatingly. ''You know perfectly well what I wished to see you about.'' "'I want to hear your explanation of what occurred last night. "'May I sit, sir?' "'He dropped gracefully into a chair, without waiting for permission, "'and, having hitched up the knees of his trousers, "'beamed winningly at the manager. "'A deplorable affair,' he said, with a shake of his head. "'Extremely deplorable. "'We must not judge these rough, uneducated men too harshly, however.' In a time of excitement, the emotions of the lower classes are easily stirred. Where you or I would... Mr. Bickersdyke interrupted. I do not wish for any more buffoonery, Mr. Smith. Smith raised a pained pair of eyebrows. Buffoonery, sir? I cannot understand what made you act as you did last night, unless you are perfectly mad, as I am beginning to think. "'But surely, sir, there was nothing remarkable in my behaviour. "'When a merchant has attached himself to your collar, "'can you do less than smite him on the other cheek? "'I merely acted in self-defence. "'You saw for yourself. "'You know what I am alluding to, "'your behaviour during my speech.' "'An excellent speech,' murmured Smith courteously. "'Well?' Said Mr. Bickersdyke. It was perhaps mistaken zeal on my part, sir, but you must remember that I acted purely from the best motives. It seemed to me that is enough, Mr. Smith. I confess that I am absolutely at a loss to understand you. It is too true, sir," sighed Smith. "You seem," continued Mr. Bickersdyke, warming to his subject. "'and turning gradually a richer shade of purple. "'You seem to be determined to endeavour to annoy me. "'No, no,' from Smith. "'I can only assume that you are not in your right senses. "'You follow me about in my club.' "'Our club, sir,' murmured Smith. "'Be good enough not to interrupt me, Mr. Smith. "'You dog my footsteps in my club. "'Purely accidental, sir. "'We happen to meet. "'That is all.' "'You attend meetings at which I am speaking "'and behave in a perfectly imbecile manner,' Smith moaned slightly. "'It may seem humorous to you, but I can assure you "'it is extremely bad policy on your part. "'The new Asiatic Bank is no place for humor, and I think... "'Excuse me, sir,' said Smith. "'The manager started at the familiar phrase.' the plum colour of his complexion deepened. "'I entirely agree with you, sir,' said Smith, "'that this bank is no place for humour. "'Very well, then, you, and I am never humorous in it. "'I arrive punctually in the morning, "'and I work steadily and earnestly till my labours are completed. "'I think you will find, on inquiry, "'that Mr. Rossiter is satisfied with my work.' "'That is neither here nor—' "'Surely, sir,' said Smith, "'you are wrong. "'Surely your jurisdiction ceases "'after office hours? "'Any little misunderstanding "'we may have at the close of the day's work "'cannot affect you officially. "'You could not, for instance, "'dismiss me from the service of the bank "'if we were partners at bridge, "'at the club, and I happened to revoke.' "'I can dismiss you, let me tell you, Mr. Smith, for studied insolence, whether in the office or not. "'I bow to superior knowledge,' said Smith politely, "'but I confess I doubt it.' "'And,' he added, "'there is another point. May I continue to some extent?' "'If you have anything to say, say it.' Smith flung one leg over the other and settled his collar. It is perhaps a delicate matter, he said, but it is best to be frank. We should have no secrets. To put my point quite clearly, I must go back a little, to the time when you paid us that very welcome weekend visit at our house in August. If you hope to make capital out of the fact that I have been a guest of your father, not at all, said Smith, deprecatingly. Not at all. You do not take me. My point is this. I do not wish to revive painful memories, but it cannot be denied that there was, here and there, some slight bickering between us on that occasion. The fault, said Smith magnanimously, was possibly mine. I may have been too exacting, too capricious. Perhaps so. However, the fact remains that you conceived the happy notion of getting me into this bank, under the impression that... "'Once I was in, you would be able to, if I may use the expression, give me beans. "'You said as much to me, if I remember. "'I hate to say it, but don't you think, if you give me the sack, "'although my work is satisfactory to the head of my department, "'you will be, by way of admitting, that you bit off rather more than you could chew?' I merely make the suggestion. Mr Bickersdyke half rose from his chair. You? Just so, just so. But to return to the main point, don't you? The whole painful affair reminds me of the story of Agesilaus and the petulant pterodactyl, which, as you have never heard, I will now proceed to relate. Agesilaus. Mr. Bickersdyke made a curious clucking noise in his throat. I am boring you, said Smith, with ready tact. Suffice it to say that comrade Agassilius interfered with the pterodactyl, which was doing him no harm, and the intelligent creature, whose motto was Nemo me impune lacusit, turned and bit him. Bit him good and hard, so that Agasilius ever afterwards had a distaste for pterodactyls. His reluctance to disturb them became quite a byword. The society papers of the period frequently commented upon it. Let us draw the parallel. Here Mr Bickersdyke, who had been clocking throughout this speech, essayed to speak, but Smith hurried on. You are Agassilius, he said, I am the petulant pterodactyl. You, if I may say so, butted in of your own free will and took me from a happy home simply in order that you might get me into this place under you and give me beans. But curiously enough, the major portion of that vegetable seems to be coming to you. Of course, you can administer the push if you like, but as I say, It will be by way of a confession that your scheme has sprung a leak. Personally, said Smith, as one friend to another, I should advise you to stick it out. You never know what may happen. At any moment I may fall from my present high standard of industry and excellence, and then you have me, so to speak, where the hair is crisp. He paused. Mr. Bickersdyke's eyes, which even in their normal state, protruded slightly, now looked as if they might fall out at any moment. His face had passed from the plum-coloured stage to something beyond. Every now and then he made the clucking noise, but except for that he was silent. Smith, having waited for some time for something in the shape of a comment or criticism on his remarks, now rose it has been a great treat to me this little chat he said affably but i fear that i must no longer allow purely social enjoyments to interfere with my commercial pursuits with your permission i will rejoin my department where my absence is doubtless already causing comment and possibly dismay but we shall be meeting at the club shortly i hope goodbye sir goodbye he left the room and walked dreamily back to the postage department leaving the manager still staring glassily at nothing end of chapter twelve